Chapter 19 of Snowdrift, A Story of the Land of the Strong Cold by James B. Hendricks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Snowdrift by James B. Hendricks. Chapter 19 Trapped. For three days the Arctic blizzard raged and howled and drifted the snow deep over the igloos that were grouped about the hulk of the Belle On the morning of the fourth day, Claw and the captain made their way across the snow-buried deck and gazed out toward the distant ridges of the Copper Mountains. "'Might as well get started,' opined Claw. "'Have em load a week's grub onto my sled, and you and me and the dog ribble hit out.' "'Will a week's grub be enough?' growled the captain. "'It's going to be a hell of a trip. Maybe we ought to wait a couple of days and see what the weather'll do.' "'Wait, hell!' cried Claw. "'What's the use waitin'? The barometer's up, and you know damn well we ain't in for no more storm for a week or two. What we want to do is get over to Bloody Falls before Ace in the Hole takes a notion to break camp.' And what's the use of packin' more grub? We'll have his, won't we? He ain't going to break camp till we come along with the hooch, argued the other. Couple days more, and this snow will be settled and the goin' will be easier. If you don't want to go, you can stay here, retorted Claw. Me? I ain't going to take no chances. I and the dog rib can handle them, too, if you don't want none of it. And then we'll shove in on the engine camp and get the girl, and I'll just slip on over to Dawson with her. A thousand dollars is too cheap, anyhow. If I hadn't a been lit up, I'd never offered her to you for no such figure. A trade's a trade, interrupted the captain. If you're so hell-bent on going, I'll go along. He shouted the necessary orders to the sailors who were clearing the snow from the doorways of the igloos, and the two turned to the cabin. "'I'll take that five hundred now before we start, and you can give me the balance when we get back with the girl,' suggested Claw. "'You said there'd be five hundred apiece in Ace in the Hole's sack,' reminded the captain. "'I'll pay the first installment with that.' "'You will like hell. You'll pay me now. We ain't got that sack yet. Come across. I'll give you an order on—you'll give me an order on no one. You'll count out five hundred, cash money, dust, or bills, right here in this cabin, for we budge an inch. You've got it. Come across.' After much grumbling, the captain produced a roll of bills and counting off five hundred dollars passed the money reluctantly across the table to claw who immediately stowed it away don't forget to have him put a keg of rum on the sled he reminded we'll need it when we get to the engines not half water neither what we want this trip is the strong stuff that'll set him afire you got to stand your half of the rum we're partners on this I stand nothing. You put up the rum and the grub and a thousand dollars for the girl. My contract is to get her 
and deliver her on board the Belva Lou. The only thing we're partners on is ace in the hole's dust. A trade's a trade, and you got all the best of it at that. Late that afternoon, Claw and the captain and the renegade dog rib reached the bloody falls of the copper mine and searched vainly for Brent's camp. Pulled out, cried the captain, after an hour's search along the base of the upstanding rock ledges. Claw shook his head. They never got here, he amended. The storm got bad before they hit the ridges, and they're lost. Where's the camp, then? Claw indicated the high-piled snow. Tent was only pegged to the snow. Wind blew it down, and the fresh snow buried it. We'll camp and hang around a couple of days. If they weathered the storm, they'll be along by that time. If they didn't, well, they won't bother us none with the girl. How about the dust? asked the captain. If they don't come, we've got to find the camp. Claw laughed. You'll have a hell of a time doing it, with the snow piled twenty foot deep along them ledges. If they don't show up, we'll shove on to the engines. It's close to a hundred and fifty mile to the camp, according to the dog rib, and it'll take us anyways a week to make it, with the going as bad as it is. And if we hang around here for a couple of days, that'll make nine days, with a week's grub. What you gonna do about that? I told you we ought to take more. Your head don't hurt you none, the way you work, does it? sneered Claw. I suppose we couldn't send the dog rib back for some grub while he was waitin'? And while he's gone, you can get a belly full of rootin' up the snow to find the camp. For two days, Claw laid in the tent and laughed at the captain's sporadic efforts to uncover Brent's camp. If you'd help, stead of layin' around laughin', we might find it, flared the captain. I don't want to find it, jeered Claw. I'm using my head, me. The main reason I came here was to kill Ace in the hole so he couldn't butt in on the other business. If the storm saved me the trouble, all right. But the dust. Sure, the dust, mocked Claw. If we find the camp and locate the dust, I divide it up with you. If we don't, I slip up here in the spring, when you're chasing whales, and with the snow melted off, all I gotta do is reach down and pick it up, and they won't be no dividin', neither. What's to hinder me from slippin' in here long about that time? Two can play that game. Help yourself, grinned Claw. Only the mounted patrol will be along in the spring, and they'll give you a chance to explain about winter and them clooches on the Belvalu. You forgot, maybe, that such customs is frowned on. "'You damned double-dealin' hound!' cried the captain, angrily. "'Double-dealin', eh? I suppose I ought to be out there breaking my back digging in the snow, so I could divvy up with you dust that I could have all to myself by taking it easy.' I offered to share the dust with you, cause I figured I needed your help in bumpin' off them two. If you don't help, you don't get paid, and that's all there is to it. 
the indian returned with the provisions and in the morning of the third day they struck out up the coppermine with the indian breaking trail ahead of the dogs i didn't expect em to show up grinned claw as he trudged along behind the captain i figured if they didn't make camp that first stretch they never would make it full of hooch a man ain't fit to hit the trail even in good weather he thinks he can stand anything and he can't stand nothing the cold gets him here's what happened the storm gets thick and they get off the course the siwash is lost and he tries to wake up ace in the hole he finds the bottle of hooch and that's the end of the siwash somewheres out on the sea ice or in under the snow on the flats there's two frozen corpses and damn good riddance i says shortly after noon of the sixth day on the trail the dog rib halted abruptly and stood staring in bewilderment at a little log cabin half buried in the snow that showed between the spruce trunks upon the right bank of the stream claw hastened forward and spoke to him in jargon the indian shook his head and by means of signs and bits of jargon conveyed the information that the cabin did not belong to the indian camp and that it had not been there at the time he fled from the camp he further elucidated that the camp was several miles along must be some of em got sore at the rest and moved up here and built the shack opined claw anyways we got to find out but we better be hailed when we do it he looked to his revolver and stooping picked up a rifle from the sled the captain followed his example, and Claw ordered the Indian to proceed. No one had appeared, and at the foot of the ascent to the cabin, Claw paused to examine a snow-covered mound. The captain was about to join him when, with a loud yell of terror, he suddenly disappeared from sight, and the next moment the welkin rang with his curses, while Claw, laughing immoderately at the mishap, stood peering into brent's brush-covered shaft it was but the work of a few moments to haul the discomfited captain from the hole shaft and an ore dump explained claw this here's a white man's layout and he's up to date too they ain't been burnin in even on the yukon only a year or so wonder who he is the two followed the indian who had halted before the cabin and stood looking down at the snowshoe trail that led from the door off huntin i guess or over to the indian camp looks like them tracks was made yesterday he ain't done no work in the shaft though since the storm we'll go in and make ourselves to home till he gets back anyhow i don't like the idea of no white man in here According to who it is, but maybe it ain't a white man," ventured the captain. "Sure, it's a white man. Didn't I just tell you that burnin' in ain't no Indian trick?" "Dog rib snowshoes," suggested the Indian in jargon, pointing to the tracks. "That don't prove nothin'," retorted Claw. "He could have got 'em from the Injuns, couldn't he? They's two of 'em lives here." he added from the interior unharness the dogs while i build up a fire 
from the moment of brent's departure snowdrift bent all her energies persuading the indians to burn into the gravel for gold at first her efforts were unavailing even wananabish refused to take any interest in the proceeding so the girl was forced to cut her own wood tend her own fire and throw out her own gravel when however at the end of a week she panned out some yellow gold in the little cabin as she had seen brent do the old squaw was won completely over and thereafter the two women worked side by side with the result that upon the test panning snowdrift computed that they too were taking out almost an ounce a day apiece when the other indians saw the gold they also began to scrape away the snow and to cut wood and to build their fires on the gravel men and women and even the children worked all day and took turns tending the fire at night trapping and hunting were forgotten in the new-found craze for gold and it became necessary for snowdrift to toll off hunters for the day as the supply of meat shrank to an alarming minimum by the end of another week interest began to flag the particles of gold collected in the test pannings were small in size and few in number the work was hard and distasteful and it became more and more difficult for the girl to explain to them that these grains were not the ultimate reward for their work that they were only tests and that the real reward would not be visible until spring when they would clean up the gravel dumps that were mounding up beside the shafts the indians wanted to know how this was to be accomplished and snowdrift suddenly realized that she did not know she tried to remember what brent had told her of the sluicing out process and realized that he had told very little both had been content to let the details go until such time as the sluicing should begin vaguely she told the indians of sluice boxes and riffles but they were quick to see that she knew not whereof she spoke in vain she told them that brent would explain it all when he returned but they had little use for this white man who had no hooch to trade at last in desperation she hit upon the expedient of showing the indians more gold from brent's sack she extracted quantities of dust which she displayed with pride the plan worked at first but soon the indians became dissatisfied with their own showing and either knocked off altogether or ceased work on the shafts and began to laboriously pan out their dumps melting the ice for water and carrying the gravel a pan at a time to their cabins this too was abandoned after a few days and the indians returned to their traps and to the snaring of rabbits only snowdrift and old wananabish kept up to the work of cutting and hauling the wood tending the fires and throwing out the gravel despite the grueling toil snowdrift found time nearly every day to slip up and visit brent's cabin sometimes she would go only out to the bend of the river and gaze at it from a distance again she would enter and sit in his chair or moving softly about the room handle almost reverently the things that were his wiping them carefully and returning them to their place 
she purloined a shirt from a nail above his bunk and carrying it home used it as a pattern for a wonderfully wrought shirt of buckskin and beads each evening she worked on the shirt while wananabish sat stolidly by and each night as she knelt beside her bunk she murmured a prayer for the well-being of the big strong man who was hers but whether it was at the shaft at her needle at her devotions or upon her frequent trips to his cabin her thoughts were always of brent and her love for him grew with the passing of the days until her longing for his presence amounted at times almost to a physical pain one by one she counted the days of his absence and mentally speculated upon his return after the second week had passed she never missed a day in visiting his cabin always at the last bend of the river she quickened her steps and always she paused breathless for some sign of his return surely he will come soon she would mutter when the inspection showed only the lifeless cabin or he will come tomorrow when the seventeenth and the eighteenth days had passed with no sign of him the girl womanlike began to conjure up all sort and manner of dire accident that could have befallen him he might have been drowned upon a thinly crusted rapid he might have become lost or frozen or ventured upon a snow cornice had been dashed to pieces upon the rocks below every violent death known to the north she pictured for him and as each picture formed in her brain she dismissed it laughed at her fears and immediately pictured another on the nineteenth day she chopped wood until the early darkness drove her from her tasks then she returned to the cabin and fastening on her snowshoes struck off down the river surely he will be here today she murmured if he is not here today i will know something has happened and tomorrow i shall start out to find him but no i am foolish did he not say it would be two weeks a month maybe longer those were his very words and it is only nineteen days and that is not a month but he will come sooner she flushed deeply he will come to me for he does love me even as i love him in his eyes i have seen it and in his voice and in the touch of his hand the last bend was almost in sight and she quickened her pace she knew to an inch the exact spot from which the first glimpse of the cabin was to be had she reached the spot and glared eagerly toward the spruce thicket the next instant a glad cry rang out upon the still arctic air oh he has come he has come the light is in his window oh my darling my own own man half laughing half sobbing she ran forward urging her tired muscles to their utmost stumbling recovering hurrying on only a minute more now up the bank from the river and not even pausing to remove her snowshoes she burst into the room with brent's name upon her lips 
The next instant the blood rushed from her face, leaving it deathly white. She drew herself swiftly erect, and with a wild cry of terror turned to fly from the room. But her snowshoes fouled, and she fell heavily to the floor, just as Johnny Claw, with a triumphant leer upon his bearded face, leaped to the door, banged it shut, and stood with his back against it, leering and smirking down at her, while the captain of the Belva Lou knelt over her and stared into her eyes with burning, bestial gaze. End of chapter 19 Recording by Roger Moline